Well, good morning. It's uh, an honor to be standing before you once again to open God's Word. This morning we're going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians, New Testament, chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. Now, today concludes our short series on Advent with the message, The Savior Returning. Now, the main idea or the theme to walk away with here today is listed in your bulletin. It's whether awake or asleep. The certainty of the Savior's return gives hope to those who are waiting for Him. Now, the Savior returning is an often overlooked aspect of the gospel, even though it's emphasized extensively, particularly in the New Testament. There are some allusions to the second coming in some Old Testament passages, but the second coming is mentioned in 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament, and in some cases, multiple times in the same book. The return of Christ is in every chapter of the book of 1 Thessalonians, an important part of the good news. So just to give you a, a, a map that's in your uh, bulletin outline, where we're going here this morning, we're going to learn about the certainty of the Savior's return, the manner of His return, the blessing of His return. And we're also going to look at some immediate context to give us an indication of the eternal implications for those who are waiting for the Savior's return and for those who are not. So I'd like to read the text and then pray for the message. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so... We will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you, the Holy One of Israel, the Almighty, the King of all kings, the one who is worthy alone to be praised. Lord, I I ask that you would give us hearts to receive what you have said in your word. I ask that as we humbly come before you, that you would extend your compassion and mercy on us here this morning. That you would help me Speak faithfully of all that you've said. No more and no less. 
God, your people are here to hear from you. Let it be so. Let this message by your Spirit penetrate the hearts of all who hear this today and later, later on. God, would you bless us with your presence and power here in this place on this day. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, some background will be helpful to help set the stage for this letter. Some historical context. Circumstances surrounding the writing of Paul's letter to this church. So, the city of, here's our first point of contention. (laughs) Is it Thessalonica or is it Thessalonica? You've heard your favorite pastors and preachers preach it that way, right? And you've heard them say that. Well, which is it? Well, it's neither. It's Thessalonike in Greek. So, <laughs> so if we can, I, I've, I've got that so much in my mind that every time I'm going to use it today, it's hopefully that's what comes out. So this city was a thriving cosmopolitan port city in northern Greece. And, imp- and it was important because of its strategic location along this major Roman road. It was called the Via Ignatia. Now, this was a, a religiously pluralistic society that they had various Greco-Roman deities that were worshipped, like uh, Dionysus and Aphrodite and Zeus. The Egyptian gods of Isis and Serapis were popular, as well as the imperial cult with its worship of the Roman Empire. So they were all over the place. Now you see this in verse 9 of the first opening chapter of 1 Thessalonians, where Paul praises this young church for how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There was also a Jewish presence in that city, and they had a synagogue. So what I want you to do is mark your place here and turn back to Acts 17. And if you forgot to bring your Bible or you don't have one, we have some in the lobby. Or you can share with your neighbor. Acts 17, I'm just going to read the 1 through 14 to give you a sense of what was going on here in this part of the world at this time. In this church. (laughs) Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also 
and Jason had received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Now, according to some scholars, this distance between this Thessalonica and Berea was around 50 miles. So if you figure how far you can walk, if presumably they were on foot in a group, two miles a day, uh, two miles an hour, three miles an hour, that's some serious commitment. That's some serious hostility to walk a day and a half to two days to get someplace else where the gospel was being preached. That's the environment this church sprung up out of. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were so worried about this young church that Timothy was sent back to establish and exhort them in the faith and that they would be, not be moved by these afflictions we see in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians 1 through 3. Now, Timothy did report back to Paul that in spite of their afflictions and persecutions, this young church was standing firm, and they longed to see Paul and his companions again. We see that in verse 6, chapter 3. There's some historical background there to help fill in some of the blanks for us today. Now, let's get a little closer to our text, what we'd say is literary context. Paul's purpose and his desired outcome from what he says in verses 14 through 17 is laid before us. In verse 13, we see this. A couple things. Paul wanted them to, be, to have knowledge. It says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Some of your translations say, we don't want you to be ignorant of these things. So he wanted to provide them knowledge regarding those who had fallen asleep, which is a metaphor for those who have died in Christ. And he wanted to comfort them so that they would not grieve as those who have no hope. That's his purpose in what he said. Now the desired outcome we see in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the desired outcome was the encouragement and comfort of the bereaved. That's the point. That's what sets the stage. Now, I will tell you this in my preparation. <laughs> it's possible to completely miss this. It was not Paul's intention to provide a comprehensive, systematic theology of the end times. Okay? That wasn't his point. It wasn't his purpose. 
His chief concern for this young church plant was pastoral, not theological or eschatological. Yet, this hasn't stopped many of your favorite commentators and pastors and preachers and teachers launching into promoting or disparaging a particular view of the end times. Yet, when we do so, we effectively drown out the voice of God in the text with our own. The information revealed about the second coming was intended to inform and encourage and comfort the bereaved. It's like presenting a gospel message at a funeral. You would emphasize certain things and you wouldn't emphasize other things, right? I mean, you couldn't expect someone to come up to you after that message and say, hey, listen, you completely ignored the systematic foundation of original sin in the garden. You didn't mention any of that. You're like, well, what are you talking about? The context of the message being given was for a specific purpose. It's the same thing here. Paul's purpose and desired outcome provide a contextual framework for understanding what is said in 13 through 17. So in your notes, you see, we move into the certainty of his return. The certainty of his return. If you recall, uh, I had mentioned to you previously on another occasion that to understand epistles is to understand arguments. And here we see two lines of argument by the Apostle Paul. Now, what argument consists of premises that logically lead to a conclusion. Very simple. He lays one line of argument out right here. I call it the resurrection argument. Premise one, Jesus died. Premise two, Jesus rose again. The conclusion, he writes, even so, or you could say, so that, as some of your translations say, or therefore, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Your loved ones who died have not missed out on this coming, Paul is saying. In fact, they will join the Savior when he returns. You see, this is why Paul instructed them not to grieve as though they had no hope. Now, a second argument, I would say, is an argument from authority in verse 15. This is an authoritative declaration by Jesus himself. Paul writes that this, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, it, it brings to mind that thus saith the Lord of the prophets of the Old Testament that preceded a prophetic pronouncement. That's not lost on Paul. He was an expert in the Hebrew Scriptures. So this emphasis is given here is is to give like prophetic reassurance to the bereaved. Well, next we see the manner of his coming. And, And I want you to notice something that it's kind of easy to miss, depending on how quickly you read. (laughs) is that if we're not careful, we'll we'll miss the compassion of God displayed right here. That this revelation is given in the context of comforting His people that were suffering and under affliction. You see the mercy and compassion of God to even reveal this part of the mystery. So now we get into the order of resurrection here. Verse 15 tells us the living will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
That the dead in Christ will rise first, in verse 16, then the living will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, verse 17. What we also notice is it will be a personal appearing. That the Lord himself will descend from heaven, verse 16. Now this should bring to mind that passage in Acts 1, where the two witnesses dressed in white, spoke to the disciples as they're watching the ascension. They said this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. A personal appearing. This will also be a public event, and it's described by these three prepositional phrases here. The first one, with a cry of command. Now, the idea here is of a loud summons, like a signal to rowers by the master of a ship. And the experts in early Christian literature who who look at linguistics in the area of the surrounding culture at that time tell us this, that, that here by a commander as a signal for engagement in battle. The second phrase, with the voice of an archangel. Now, the language is difficult. There isn't any article here to go with archangel. So there is some debate about what exactly is meant. But I think what you can walk away with is that there's an indication of an angelic presence when he returns. And we see that elsewhere, don't we? We see that elsewhere. Thirdly, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now, the trumpet was used in various ways in Scripture, which has led to considerable debate on the meaning, like right here. Is it a call to assemble, as some teach? Is it part of a celebration? Is it the sound of an alarm? Is it an announcement of judgment? Various uses of the trumpet in the Scriptures. However, in my preparation, I found only one reference to the sound of a trumpet, trumpet mentioned within the specific context of a resurrection. And it was in 1 Corinthians by this same Paul. Verse 51 and 52, Paul writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. He's talking about the same thing. So Paul's point is this, that the cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God collectively emphasize sound. That this second coming will be a public event that's both seen and her. It's as if Paul is telling them, don't worry, not even the dead are going to miss this. So let us move into the blessing of his return in your outline. <clears throat> Paul writes that we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Verse 17. With them. Who's them? Those who have fallen asleep. (laughs) So it's going to be the biggest family reunion in the history of the world. 
The living will join departed loved ones who have fallen asleep in Christ to meet the Lord in the air when he returns and together will be part of the holy entourage that accompanies him. (laughs) Secondly, the blessing of his returns, we will always be with the Lord. We see it right there. Whether awake or asleep, those who belong to Christ will live with him forever. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. Now, this uh, brings to mind what I would refer to as the $64,000 question. Now, some of you are too young to remember this, but there was a game show in the 50s called the $64,000 question. Now, let's think about this for a minute. This young church in Thessalonica was enduring tremendous persecution and affliction. They were grieving for their loved ones and fellow believers who had fallen asleep. Some we can speculate, may have died because of their faith. The level of hostility was tremendous to the gospel. So what question naturally comes to mind after hearing these magnificent truths? When are these things going to happen? Well, we'll extend out to a little bit to the immediate context here. Paul, in verse 5, now transitions to another aspect of the Savior's return to address the issue of timing. He tells this young church, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you in verse 1. Now, this is also translated as times and epochs or times and dates. Now, this particular combination of the same two Greek words here together are translated as times and seasons. It's found in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's found in Acts 1. And it's also found in the Old Testament in Daniel 2. Now, some of you are going, hold on a second. The Old Testament was in Hebrew. I checked the Septuagint. I did my homework. All right. It's the Greek translation of the Old Hebrew Old Testament. Same combination of words. And in every case, this particular combination of words is a reference to a future event or events or the timing of future eschatological events. The simplest one is in Acts 1, 6 and 7. The disciples, speaking to the resurrected Jesus, said this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons, same words in combination, that the Father has fixed by his own authority. They had no need to have anything written to them, Paul says, regarding the timing of these spectacular events he had just described. Why didn't they have any need? Well, we see it in verse (laughs) 2. He answers that question, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. They already knew the most important aspect regarding the issue of timing, that it would come like a thief in the night. So something you could miss quickly here, too, is in Paul's mind, the day of the Lord that he uses here, he uses it synonymously with the second coming. And you're saying, well, wait a minute. Let's let's look at this. Hold your place right here and turn to the next letter that he wrote, 2 Thessalonians. Turn to the right. Go to chapter 2, just two verses to back this up. 
Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here's that now concerning phrase again where Paul transitions. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. There they are. Same author, same church, same issue, same terms used synonymously. Now, I know it's easy to pick on this church and say, boy, they were really hung up on the timing thing. But listen, they had good reason to wanting to know when this was going to happen, didn't they? They had good reason. So then, verses 1 through 11 of 5, Paul lays out the implications and the application of the second coming, day of the Lord, for those who are waiting for the Savior's return and those who aren't. So first... Two, two lines of application here. First, to those who are waiting for the Savior's return. Pretty simple, what's been said so far. Our hope is in Jesus. <laughs> Our hope is in the one who was in the beginning. The one who was with God and was God. The one who created all things and for whom all things were created. The one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. The one who, by whom the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. He's the one who was despised and rejected man who was betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends. The one who bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The one who fulfilled everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. The one who died who was raised, and through whom God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That's the Jesus in whom we hope. Now this hope is for the dead as well as the living. Let me explain here. Paul writes in chapter 5, 9, and 10, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or or asleep, we might live with Him. A hope that survives the grave is what He's saying. He also tells us to remain steadfast in the faith, living in anticipation of Christ's return. You are not in darkness, He tells them, for that day to surprise you like a thief. There's some practical instructions for those who wait in 12 through 18. As if these aren't practical, but these are more, more so. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. He's talking about church leaders. Now think of the impact of this when you consider the risk to the leaders of this young church plant in such a hostile environment. Or consider the risk to leaders today 
in our day in various parts of the world. You know how to affect the people the most? You take out the leaders, don't you? He's telling them, look, respect those who labor among you and esteem them very highly in love. He also tells this young church plant to be at peace among yourselves. I think that's directly related to <laughs> loving those in leadership. Be at peace among yourselves. Love one another. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. He also says this, that we are to admonish the idle. They were. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone as we see this by extension to us. There's some other issues in here, but I wanted to focus on this last one. One of these is rejoice always. <laughs> Pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. Think of where they were, what they were going through. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And by extension, us. In all circumstances, give thanks. Well, he says to encourage and comfort one another with these words in in chapter 4, verse 18. And as this thought continues and flows into 5, he tells them in five, chapter 5, verse 11, encourage one another and continue to build one another up with these words. Jesus told his disciples in this parable in Luke 12, and I think it applies here, is that blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Now, the other line of implication is to those who are not waiting for the Savior's return. To them, the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The Savior's return is something totally unexpected by the unbelieving world. While the world is saying there's peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. As one commentator puts it, signs will precede the coming. And that is true in 2 Thessalonians. There's some things. He's, Paul assures this church, look, the Lord has not returned yet. The day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. There's some things that have to happen in the future. Commentator puts it this way. Signs will precede this coming to confirm the patient hope of the watchful believer. But the coming itself shall be sudden at last. Now, lest we go down too far down this other road of application, we're going to get away from the pastoral purpose and intention of what Paul was after. So let's return to our theme. And I would tell you this, and I know personally of those of you out here who this, all of this applies to the grieving today. Grieve for your loved ones who have fallen asleep in Christ but not like those who have no hope. Some of you may have loved ones approaching that day or closer to home. Maybe you yourself are approaching that day when you will join those who have fallen asleep. Well, let me... Let me uh, 
say this to you. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So whether awake or asleep, the certainty of the Savior's return gives hope to those who are waiting for him. I hope, I hope these words have informed you, have comforted you, and have encouraged you, and that you have been all of these things by this glorious truth. Let's pray. Lord, what can we possibly say to these things? What can we possibly say in response to these things? But thank you. You know, on our night of Thanksgiving, I, I recall how much we recalled how faithful you've been in the past and your work in our lives, and how faithful you were being in the present in our lives. But today, Lord, on behalf of your people here, I want to thank you for being faithful for the future that we have in you. Thank you.